Welcome to the Conversation Continues podcast by IIDA Southern California EDI, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. The Conversation Continues podcast was created to serve as a platform to continue the conversation around equity, diversity, inclusion in commercial interior design and affiliated industries. Each episode brings an intimate and thought-provoking conversation around EDI, highlighting individuals from our industry. Hi, Bang. Thank you for coming on the show. Really glad to hey, have man. you here. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah, can you quickly um, just introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Von Dominguez. I am currently an assistant professor of interior design at California State University, Long Beach. So I've been teaching for about five years now, and I've also worked in the interior design profession. So I have about uh, I think but like about 15 years of experience in the interior design profession. So, but currently I'm a full-time professor at the university. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So um, can you talk about a little bit about how it all started? Um, when did you come to the U.S.? Did you come with alone or with the families? Sure. I, I was born in the Philippines in a town called Angeles City, um, which is a province of um, Mabalacat. Uh, so I was actually born there and my dad actually um, emigrated to the U.S. Uh, when I was about three years old because he wanted to look for a more stable income, uh, kind of a better prospect for me and my mom. Mm. So he was in the U.S. for about a year. He was an accountant, so he worked for the L.A. Unified School District. Oh. And then for about a year, he was working in the U.S. with his um, cousin and his uncle. So a lot of my dad's side kind of moved to the U.S. first. And then about a year after he kind of got his job and he was a little more secure, he kind of brought me and my mom over. So I actually moved over to the, Philipp- or the, the U.S. when I was four years old. Um, oh. So straight from the Philippines to the U.S. So I was really young when I yeah. when I came over, really young. Yeah, I mean, four years old. Do you remember anything like? Uh, <laughs> I remember actually getting on the plane and like seeing my cousins cry because we were leaving. Because so my mom's side is primarily still in the Philippines. Um, okay. So I remember getting on the plane and then seeing my cousins who were, were really close because we grew up together. We were all about the same age and they were crying and I didn't know what was happening. I just thought we were going on a trip somewhere <laughs> back. <laughs> Little did you know, we were traveling to another whole new country. So that's what I remember leaving the Philippines. Um, was just seeing my cousins crying on the side <laughs> before oh, we got no. on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a super young. So, um, so what happened after? Like, did you finally like later realize you're not going back? Um, you know, at the moment you were like, "Oh, why, cousin, you're crying," <laughs> but yeah, later I, you realized you're not going back. Yeah, I, I don't think it hit me until we actually landed in the U.S. and then we moved to our our little home, and then I I met my cousins for the first time on my dad's side who I, I never met before. And, you know, I, I didn't know any English. So 
I we came into my my room and I remember them unloading my my you know luggage and my boxes and my toys and then I remember seeing my cousin Jasmine in my room kind of like playing with my toys and I asked my mom in in Tagalog our native language I said who is this girl and what is she doing with my toys <laughs> so that's that's when I kind of realized like oh wait I'm not in the Philippines anymore I'm somewhere else and I I was kind of like asking a lot of questions I remember just like crying a couple times because I I didn't you know go to my old room I didn't have my you know familiar surroundings around me there's a lot of new people that I was meeting or being introduced to that no clue who they were so I think that's when it hit me I was like well this is I'm not going back kind of (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah so did your cousin speak um uh your language too or only speak english no so she yeah she only spoke english um so we, there was a big language barrier there at the beginning you know so she was about the same age as me mm-hmm. uh, she was born like i think a month earlier so we were about the same oh. age but the language and the culture barrier she was born in the u.s obviously and so the first couple of years was like you know water and oil were just two different people and two different personalities she was more of the loud one i was more of the quiet silent one so yeah two two kids two different languages two different cultures two different personality types we just did not get along at the beginning (laughs) she was always getting in trouble and I was I was always kind of off to the side when we grew up Um, but eventually she kind of taught me English because you know and I taught her our native language and and she speaks it now when when uh, we meet our family yeah oh wow so it was kind of interesting that we were kind of like growing together but also kind of helping each other understand the opposite culture a little bit mm-hmm. so you know it was good that she was the same age because we, we kind of could relate to each other and as we got older we became like brother and sister really um, we were like the oldest cousins at that time um, so we we kind of walked through life together in school and in you know teaching each other a, uh, the opposite language and then culture so we were kind of like each other's um siblings growing up which is kind of nice yeah yeah I, I don't think I would have assimilated as fast as I would have if it wasn't for her you know, oh she yeah. helped me a lot in terms of you know the culture here and how how you know how she interacted with other kids and how she interacted in school um she was kind of like a uh, not a role model per se but like a um, other version of me that I saw that was more outspoken and more out there so it was kind of nice for me to see that and see her grow yeah did you guys live together like did your two families live in the same house yeah we we actually had this little complex of five houses in in this one little area and mm-hmm. all the houses were the same same footprint, same architecture. And there was this long driveway that connected these five houses. Mm-hmm. And we were in the middle house and she was in like the first house. Okay. And so, and then my, my other cousins from my dad's side were also in those houses as well. So we kind of grew up within the first like four years of, with each other, like playing mm-hmm. with each other in our houses and going to like grandma's house after school and she would cook us a meal 
Um, so that was really nice. That kind of yeah. helped me, you know, calm down because it, it felt like the Philippines <laughs> in a way, but you know, in America. So if if we were kind of like grew up in different houses and we were all living in different cities, I think it would have been harder. But the fact that we were all living together really and seeing each other often after school and playing each, with each other on weekends. And I think that helped in terms of, um, you know, getting assimilated into, into the new environment and new country. So that was really nice. I don't know how it happened, how everyone got the houses all. I know I was going to ask you. <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it just happened. And I think, I, I think we were renting the houses. I think that's what it was. It was, there were like rental houses. It was like a two bedroom, one bath about, like a 900 square foot house, each one, but they all had the same floor plan. They all had the same architecture. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just each of us, you know, my, we were in the middle house again. Then my cousin was in the first house. Then my grandparents were also in the first house. And then the two other houses were my cousins. So it was nice. Like we all kind of grew up together. I know. It's like your family is complex almost. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. That's what it was. It was like a, you know, a complex of our, our dad's side. And that's why I'm a lot closer with my dad's side of the mm-hmm. family than my mom's side. Cause my mom's side was still in the Philippines when we were growing up and going to school and getting our education and things like that. So yeah, we're a lot closer to our dad's side of the family. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That sounds like a um, great way when you just move here, when you are so young. Um, yeah. It definitely was helpful to have that family around you and support you, you know, because um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of times there are uh, families that kind of come to the U.S. and it's just them by themselves. And right. you know, that's, that's a lot harder of a transition versus like having a, a group of, and a community that kind of supports you. Yeah. Yeah. But they also come a lot later, no? <laughs> Four years. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about, um, so like you don't know English, but at age four, you probably learn super fast, you know, like at that age. Um, do you remember like about this language learning journey you have to go through the first few years? Yeah, I think it was tough because like I said, my cousin was a big part of uh, helping me uh, learn English. But I think also my mom, mom so my grandma from my mom's side she comes from an educator background oh so she, my mom was very strict in terms of like teaching us english and kind of getting us ready to go to school in the states um and then at the oh. same time too my grandma from my dad's side would always was also help us kind of teach us english um i think my mom knew english when she moved over here with me but i didn't mm-hmm. it was like kind of like a group effort of like my aunts and my grandma and my cousin teaching me English. Um, and again, through like, you know, TV, I think they told me I used to watch a lot of TV shows, like, <laughs> you know, like Sesame Street or something like that to, to help me learn English and colors and basic words. And um, so it, there definitely was a lot of help or I, I, I definitely had a lot of help in terms of growing up and getting kind of um, assimilated into the culture. So I think that's how it, it started. And you know, it, it definitely was a hard language to learn. It's not the easiest language. I think, you know, learning another language is easier than learning English, to be honest. Really? You think so? Yeah. I mean, English has a lot of, you know, words that sound the same, but have different meanings, True. a lot of weird, you know, ways you have to, you know, write a sentence. So it's, it was definitely a challenge, but I think, 
I think it may be easier learning at a younger age than than when you're, when you come in here and you try to learn English when you're, you know, like in your thirties or forties or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's easier to learn at a a younger age because you're more, um, I guess, open to kind of change and, and, you know, um, learn things versus when you're older, you're probably not as, you know, adverse to learn something new or you like to kind of keep with your old ways or your old habits, things like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because when my parents, so when we came, like my parents never learned English. They just like, you know what, <laughs> not, <laughs> not going to even bother. <laughs> so, do they do they still learn? Do they still talk in your native language? Yeah, so they never learned English. They know a few words, but like not enough to do anything. But yeah. because we came, uh, lived in Monterey Park in Los Angeles, yeah. so so yeah they didn't really need to because it's like a whole community with the chinese people yeah, um, yeah totally get that when you are like a little bit older you don't want to learn anything anymore <laughs> yeah, yeah i know Monterey park has a huge chinese community I, I my my wife who was my girlfriend at the time we used to live in alhambra which is by Monterey oh. park and we would always pass by like the chinese stores and restaurants so i knew there was a like a chinese community there yeah so which city were you guys in that oh, complex? We were in, we were in Hawthorne. So oh, okay. South Bay. Yeah. So we kind of grew up in the South Bay area. So Hawthorne, we were at that complex for, I think, about like two, three years. And then as, you know, our our parents kind of um, got promotions in their field of work, we started looking at houses in like uh, Torrance and then South Bay area, Carson, so we pretty much stayed around the South Bay, like Carson, mm-hmm. Torrance, Hawthorne, Gardena-ish area. Yeah. So that's where we primarily grew up. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, it's a still in like Los Angeles County and yeah. just never left. Yeah. We, we never left LA County. <laughs> so okay. We're, we're, you know, stayed local. We didn't yeah. really, I mean, we traveled to different towns and things like that, but we never lived outside of LA County. Mm-hmm. So other than English, there you, like a big effort everyone try to teach you. Uh, is there any effort to make sure you still maintain your native language as well? Yeah, I, we, we get asked that all the time at like yeah. family parties. <laughs> they always say like, oh, you talk to me in English now. Like you used to talk to me in Tagalog. Or, um, we also speak our native tongue in our province called Kampampangan, which uh-huh. is different from Tagalog, which is like the overall general you know, language of the Philippines. So we have a different dialect than Tagalog. So sometimes I, I talk in our native dialect and then, you know, my aunts and my grandma would be shocked and say, oh, you still remember it? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Like I, I don't speak it as much, which is kind of like my fault. I think it was, you know, as, as you kind of assimilated into like school, right? And your friends talk English and that was the main language. You kind of forget your native language. So I kind of blame myself for that, for not, you know, being as uh, active and speaking it when around family and family gatherings or cousins and, and um, things like that. So it's actually funny because my cousin, she speaks that now when we're around family. That's she doesn't speak English in front of our relatives. Uh, oh. She speaks she speaks our language, and you know, people would be surprised when they hear her talk because she grew up here. You know, and and she she speaks it fluently when she's around our, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, and then 
you know, I understand it, you know, so I understand it more than I can speak it, to be honest, because again, I I kind of lost that. Yeah. You know, in my mind, which again, I blame myself for not keeping up with our language. Um, but again, I, if, if you, if somebody were to say it and I hear them and I mm-hmm. speak to them, they'd be surprised and like, Oh, you know how to speak it to you. I'm like, yeah, I know. I still know a few words. I, I still know a few sentences here and there. Yeah. So it's not all completely lost in me. It's just, um, I don't speak it as much as I should be when I'm around, you mm-hmm. know, the same kind of dialect. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, with your parents, do you guys st- do you guys mainly communicate in English now, or um... it's, it's funny because uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So sometimes they they forget and they speak to me in Kampongbangan, and I understand it. Like I don't know what they, I know what they're saying, and then I'll just speak back in English, or if I remember some of the phrases in Kampongbangan, I'll I'll speak it like that uh, in Kampongbangan too. But if they speak to me in our native language, I understand fully what they're yeah. saying and mm-hmm. what you know so they kind of know i still understand but i don't speak it as much as i used to um, yeah but at home it's a mix like sometimes you know my aunts and my mom will talk in Kampampangan, and then sometimes they'll speak in english so it's kind of like a hybrid yeah. language here in the states you know whereas obviously in the philippines it's 100 percent native but here they've they've kind of combined both and yeah They'll, they'll use the same in the one sentence they'll have a kampampangan and an English word so it's kind of like you have to kind of adjust to because there are some words in kampampangan that don't translate to English so they'll they'll kind of make it English instead um, but it's a hybrid which really is kind of interesting <laughs> yeah that is I feel like every language have that because yeah. uh, that interview with Manny one of my friends he, he was talking about he grew up with Spanish, Spanglish, and yeah, yeah. English. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of similar. Yeah, because even my wife, like, um, her family speaks Spanish, and then they didn't teach her to speak Spanish. And she, she was born here in Central Valley up in Central California. And uh, when I go to their, you know, reunions or parties, there is that, like, Spanish-English kind of. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of similar to what we're doing at home. You know, it's it's a mix of... They speak to him in Spanish and English, and then they understand. But the kids or her cousins don't speak in full Spanish back. They speak in English primarily. Um, yeah. So I'm like, hey, they're kind of like me. <laughs> yeah, just a different like language. Up. Yeah, it's the same That's thing. Super interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. I recently, uh, I recently read an article on uh, New York Times or one of those magazines. They were saying there are some struggles of uh, children of immigrants because they um, born here and somehow some of them lost their native language. Mm-hmm. So their parents doesn't speak English, then they end up being not be able to communicate with their own parents. Yeah. So I was like, I never really thought about that, but that's like a really good point how um, that could happen. Yeah, it's, it's, I did a, uh, actually, I did um, a project on this when I was in grad school Oh, about the language. And it was like a National Geographic article, if I remember it correctly. Uh, but it was about like the layers of language and how generations are losing languages because of everyone trying to assimilate to speaking English, right? Because, you know, like a, 
like a culture that has a native language and it's with a very small population, you know, you have to kind of learn English to kind of get ahead and, you know, to get a job, to, you know, take care of your parents with, you know, your, your income and take care of your family. And you can't do that if you speak your native language, really. So they need to learn how to speak English to kind of, again, take care of themselves and their family. And then when they speak English, kind of like me, you start losing your native language and that becomes like secondary. And you, it's like a kind of like a gradual degradation of it, right? And you yeah. realize you're losing it until, you know, years later, mm-hmm. like, kind of like me. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I, I don't speak this language anymore because like, you know, my friends all speak English, my my colleagues speak English, the TV I watch or the music I listen to is all in English. And it's like that gradual loss of your uh, native language that you're not realizing you're losing it until I think years down the road. So yeah. it's tough, you know, I think it's it's on us to kind of remember it and to kind of keep speaking it, especially around our family when, um, like you said, if if you don't speak it, then you can't communicate with them. And yeah. that's a huge loss, I think. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of connecting to your family. I, you know, thankfully my grandparents speak English too, because yeah. I think when they came here, they had to get jobs too. Um, but they do appreciate it when, you know, people of our age or our generation speaks their native language because it is a lost art. It's, yeah. it's not surviving anymore. You know, it's like a, it's going to go down and it's kind of fading out. Um, so I think as if we can kind of keep it alive and teach our generations and teach our kids in the future to kind of honor our parents, right. Mm-hmm. Who came here sacrificed for us. I think that's just one of the small things we could do to kind of keep their memory alive. Maybe. Yeah, no, that's hundred percent. I feel like, um, you know, for our next generation, if we can be more intentional of keeping our language alive, that would be great. It's just, I also read somewhere saying like, everyone speaking like language is extinguishing or something. It was just, yeah. Yeah, I I remember doing the the project, I think it was with, we actually did a collaboration with uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. it was a studio project with Cal Poly Pomona and Walt Disney Engineering. And it was about language. The whole class had to kind of deal with the, the idea about language. Um, and then it was kind of interesting to see all the projects that came up in terms of, you know, what languages are being lost. I think from my research, and this was in like 2012 or whatever, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of like the Inuit language was being lost, like people that were living in Alaska because the tribes were getting smaller and smaller, you know? Yeah. Um, so it focused more on like the smaller kind of tribes that were losing languages because, you know, their numbers were decreasing because of overpopulation and, you know, um, climate change, things like that. So it's not just, you know, the assimilation to the culture, but also like their geography and where they live that's affecting the language as well. So it was really interesting. Um, and I, we had to present in front of the Imagineers, which is kind of cool. Ah. Um, and I actually got a little award. One of the Imagineers liked my project and they gave me a little, a little, you know, <laughs> a little, uh, certificate saying it was their favorite project. So that was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That whole project was super interesting. It was, it was very fun to kind of, 
um, work on, but it also kind of, what I didn't do is kind of like focus on myself and my language, um, you know? So I think if I had to go back, I would, I would kind of put a twist in it and, and talk about myself as well and my experience mm. with my language. And I didn't do that. So um, that was one thing maybe I, I wanted to do if I had to go back and, and change the project a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you remember uh, the reason behind why you didn't pick your own language? Uh, I think uh, because of my research, I was focused more on the languages that were being lost quickly. Oh, okay. Uh, versus, okay. versus mine. So yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's where I kind of spun the project around, like the ones that were were being lost, you know, within the next five years or something like that, that were going to oh, okay. be extinct. So I focused on that versus like mine because when yeah, I research our native language wasn't up there. That was kind of like the endangered yeah. list or, or something like that. Yeah, no, that's, that, that makes sense. Um, great segue though. Like, can you talk about um, your education journey and what was your major? Is it architecture? <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like there's something different. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to, I got accepted at Cal State Long Beach, right? So when I was here, I actually, my first major was biochemistry. Okay. <laughs> uh, I actually loved chemistry in high school. I did really well. I loved my teacher in high school and I, I got awards for chemistry in high school. Um, so I thought, cool, like I could just do the same thing at a university and do like, like biochemistry. Um, you know, I, I was going to be like some kind of pharmacist or something like that, or work in the lab or something like that. I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I, I knew I love that, uh, you know, um, chemistry. So I was like, okay, maybe I should just do that in college. But it turns out it was a completely different experience in college <laughs> where I did not have fun in the classes. Um, I remember everyone in my class for the beginning chemistry class getting like D's and wow. C's on their, their test. And that was like the, the normal, I guess. Oh no. And the teachers that were there were really old and they're very kind of like my way or the highway. And they didn't like talking to you or they didn't like interacting with students. And mm -hmm. I kind of told myself like, I don't know if I want to do this for another four years. Mm -hmm. I'm not having fun. Yeah. You know, like I'm not enjoying, it was not as enjoyable as it was in high school. Um, and again, probably because the teacher in high school was really great versus the ones here in, in the university were, in my opinion, very poor in terms mm -hmm. of how to communicate with students. And it just felt, I just felt like I couldn't do it. Like I, I wasn't going to be happy if I stuck with chemistry. So I actually just took two years of just taking my general education classes. Um, and then I was like, okay, I got, and after taking as much GE classes as I could, I was like, okay, I, I got to pick something because I got to graduate eventually, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I came across the 132A class here in design, which was now 130. Um, and I remember it was a perspective class. So we had to learn how to draw in perspective, right? How to render materials with marker or color pencil. And I, I took it because as a kid, I, I used to draw a lot, mm. like cartoon characters. And, and like, I would draw like uh, my cousins just for, for fun. It was something on the side I did for fun. And then I just remember like my 
cousins tell me, oh, you, you draw really well. You should uh, look into like being an artist or an animator or something like that. So that was my, my dream job, right? I wanted to be like an animator, mm-hmm. like a Walt Disney animator or animation. Um, but I didn't draw as well as those people. <laughs> it wasn't to that level of depth and, you know, detail. Uh, I just drew for fun. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I don't think I could be an animator because I don't, my kind of animation skills are not close to like what is needed. So I saw design and I was like, huh, like I can be creative and I can still draw, but I'm also bound to like rules and and the right and wrong way how to design a space or how to design a, an object. So I kind of like that. I like that the fact that I could be creative, but there's there's certain boundaries that kind of keep me realistic versus like an art class where you can just draw and then, you know, anybody could like it or hate it. Mm-hmm. There was no right and wrong in art. And, and I think what I liked about design is there's a right and wrong way to do things, but you could still be kind of creative mm-hmm. and make something you know, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I like that. I, I, when I finished that perspective class at the end of the semester, I remember my professor, Jerry Yates at the time, he kind of pulled me aside after the semester was over and he said, so are you going to go back to, to science? And I said, no. <laughs> and I said, why? He's like, because I think you have some good talent if you stay around here. And I was like, oh, okay. So that was kind of like my kind of like light and bulb moment. And I was like, oh, maybe I, I should stay in design. And then yeah. that was that was it. I got my BFA here at CSULB with interiors. And then I started working for three years at a firm in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to get my master's at Cal Poly Pomona in architecture. Um, so I got my master's in 2013 mm-hmm. and then worked at LPA for a couple of years. And then because I got my master's, I'm, I'm where I'm at today being a you know, full-time tenure track professor here at CSULV. So it was, the journey was crazy. I, I didn't think I was going to be a teacher. You know, I, I wanted to be an animator, but now I'm a, I'm a teacher. So. Yeah. yeah. No, that's super interesting. How from biochemistry to yeah. architect to it's, teacher. Yeah. It's just crazy, you know, but I, if you tell me now back then, like, would I, would I believe myself if I was a professor? I say no. Um, but if I ask myself now, do I love what I do? Absolutely. I love teaching. I love being in a classroom with students, with like sharing ideas and developing talent and mm-hmm. talking about design and being passionate about design. I love it. It's yeah. it's for me, you know. I but I back then I wanted to be a animator, a, <laughs> animator. and. You know, it's, it's just crazy how different uh, paths you take to kind of get where you are. Yeah, um, definitely. What, what made you want to go pursue architecture after the interior design degree? Uh, a couple of things. So uh, like the professors here, like Dorothy mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Jerry Yates would always tell me like, oh, you have you have a mind where I think you can go to grad school and learn more and do more. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm tired of school. Like, as you guys know, like thesis here at CSULB is a really big process and it's a lot of work and it's very time consuming. It's very tiring. And I was like, no, I'm done after thesis. Like, I'm done. I don't want to be in school anymore. Yeah. Like, I want to work and I want to make money, you know, which I did for three years. 
Um, but then in 2009, when the economy went bad and everyone was kind of being let go in interior design, and I was seeing my friends being let go one by one. And then eventually I got let go because we had no work for the past. Like I remember going into the firm and for two months and we didn't have any work and we were just cleaning our office really. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually one day they just told me like, yeah, sorry, we just have to let you go because there's no work. And mm-hmm. I was like, I understand. But thankfully I, around the time when the economy was kind of, taking a dive in our industry I actually applied just to see if I can get in right and like, oh. I remember you know Dorothy telling me like oh yeah you should you have a grad school architecture in mind you should just apply and then thankfully I did because I I got in um so when they let me go I was like okay that's actually fine because I got into grad school yeah um, so it was actually kind of like perfect timing at the moment when the industry was low and nobody was hiring go back to school and get a higher degree um but there was it was really close that first year of grad school where I was I think I wanted to drop out oh Um, yeah because I I went to Cal Poly and then the first year I was doing things like here at Cal State Long Beach it's very similar so I was kind of questioning like why am I why am I back at school and I'm learning how to draw again and I'm learning how to you know build models again like I already did that at Long Beach Mm -hmm. and the first it was a quarter system. So the first quarter I got half of my classes waived because we took similar classes at Cal State Long Beach. So I only had one class, <laughs> a studio class. It was just a studio class and we were making models almost like our design 120B course and, you know, learning how to cut with X-Acto knife, learning how to glue basswood together. And I, I just sat in the studio one day and I was like, I really know how to do this stuff. Like, what am I doing yeah. here? Mm-hmm. Um, I went from getting paid to kind of paying for school again you know and I was like really close to kind of just saying no I'm just going to go back to work mm-hmm. um, you know because like I'm, I'm not learning anything new and I'm, I'm losing money because I'm paying yeah. in my pocket for for grad school and uh, and then I think somebody I think it was my mom who kind of pulled me aside and kind of slapped me on the head and said like hey like look you were one of you know, 18 that were accepted to this program out of the whole country and you're going to back out now. And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, mom, you're right. You know, I think, I think I should stay because one, there was still, nobody was hiring. Right. So mm. it was hard to kind of find work. And then I was like, what else am I going to do? I might as well finish off the three-year program. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully I did because, uh, you know, I wouldn't, be here teaching if I didn't get that master's degree um, mm. so that master's degree was kind of like my open door to kind of to a different path um, so I, when I got my master's degree again I kind of wanted to have my own firm and you know hire my own people and then start my own business and then it was like nope you're gonna be a teacher and you're gonna <laughs> you teach students and so that was another different path too. Like I, I wanted to have my own firm and be a principal. Yeah. Oh. And it was like, nope, you're going to be a teacher. And I think I'm for the, I'm for the better of it. I, yeah. I don't think I could have my own firm to be honest. Like, <laughs> I, I love teaching. I love kind of having my own schedule and, you know, being free for the summer and, 
and holidays. <laughs> oh my god, isn't that the best part? I almost jealous of teachers. Yeah, I mean it's a lot of work during the semester, but it is nice to have summers off and you know holidays off as well. Because my wife is a second grade teacher, so we both、oh, get、okay. holidays off. So it's nice that we can, you know, travel together when we have time off, or go out of town or something like that on a on a you know afternoon. So it's really nice. Wow,、um, that's yeah, that, awesome. That was my kind of path. Yeah, that was my path to school. It was to grad school. It was you know based off of recommendations from faculty here. At、mm-hmm. CHLB, and then the economy like kind of crashing and not having any jobs left. So, yeah,、uh, it was a little bit of perfect timing, and you know, advice from from recent professors. So, yeah, it, it worked out. It worked out definitely. Yeah, I'm curious、um, if you have any additional thoughts on you know you stayed because your mom was like you know you should stay. Um, and then it did open a lot of other doors for you, opportunities. I'm curious to hear more about,、uh, like, after you stay that the rest of the two years,、uh, what do you feel like that master degree? Like, did you learn anything additional? What do you feel the difference between that and the Cal State Long Beach Interior Program? Yeah, it was definitely after the first year of grad school. It was kind of similar to CSULB. Um, but I think the second year of our grad school program, that's when it changed. That's、mm-hmm. when it went to like structures and learning how to calculate beams and footings,、uh-huh. and foundations. So it was a lot of like you know math and trigonometry and and understanding how to calculate things, and then also dealing with site conditions.、Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because interiors we don't typically deal with site; we just get a building and we we just do the inside or parts of the inside. Whereas architecture, you do everything,、mm-hmm. right? So outside site,、um, the framing, the structure, the calculations,、um, you know, plumbing codes, city codes, and all that. So it was definitely a lot more detailed, but in the same way, it was very similar in thought process to interior design, in terms of like understanding how to generate concepts and ideas, and learning how to kind of communicate your design to a client or people.、Mm-hmm. Um, so this, the foundation that I kind of learned at Cal State Long Beach kind of helped me prepare for grad school, and it made it easier for me because, you know, we already knew how to do conceptual diagrams. We already knew how to kind of some of the software programs that they were teaching us.、Mm-hmm. Um, we already knew we we're going to be in studio for hours and hours <laughs> and hours. You know, not no sleep. So we knew the we knew the routine,、uh, but it was just there. There are classes where you do get new information, but I think CSULB helped me prepare for that and not allow me to kind of run away from it, but just、mm-hmm. accept、yeah. it and understand it's similar. But there's also new things that you that they add on with architecture. Okay.、Um, yeah. No, that's super interesting. I always thought, you know, like, do I really want to go back to school? If I do, <laughs> maybe architecture is definitely for masters.、Um, yeah. One of the choice, right? So I'm always curious of. Like how that feels like. So yeah, well, that's another thing too. Like, because、um, the I think I forgot who told me this, but they always they told me like you know you should go back to if you're thinking about getting a master's, do it soon because you know let's say you're working for ten years and then you like oh let me go back it's going to be completely different right versus if you work like a year or two and then you、yeah. go back to school.、So、I know that was a good advice somebody told me too. I, I again I forgot who told me that, but they said look. If you drop out now and you go back to work, 
and then you're like, oh, actually, I'm going to go back. It's going to be completely different five years down the road than where you are now because technology yeah. changes, right? The the issues change with you know architecture and design, um, and it's true. Like if if I let's say want to go back to get my PhD right now, like no, I don't, <laughs> I don't see anything to do that because I'm I'm already kind of used to like my schedule, like my life, my my teaching, my you know. So I think it's harder when you're older to kind of go back to school. Not saying you can't do it, but there's a gap between you know working professionally and then going back to school. So that's why a lot of our students who are thinking about getting a master's, we tell them mm-hmm. to do it, you know, either right away or, you know, take a year off or work for a couple of years, then do it. Don't wait, yeah. you know, many years on the road because it's going to be completely different. Yeah, totally. Even um, not talking about master's, even as simple as, uh, you know, the NCIDQ, the interior design yeah. exams, I didn't do it right away. That was a huge mistake. Now yeah. it's really hard for me to get into it, like to do it. Yeah, right. Because you have to like study. You have to take time out of your day to study and you know take the the pre test and things like that. So it breaks your schedule definitely. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's tough to kind of yeah. prolong education, I guess. Yeah. I guess, yeah, like if anyone asked me, I was like, do it right away. Do it when you're in school. <laughs> Just take one, when, whichever one you can take. Yeah. So then um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, you did a little bit about residential work, correct? A little bit about commercial uh, work? A little residential. I focus primarily more on commercial work. Commercial, so okay. When I was at LPA, we did mostly corporate offices. Okay. Uh, so like really, really rapid, quick change offices, like, you know, tear down, built in new things. So projects lasted as quickly as two months to like four months. So there was really like fast paced turnaround. Yeah. Um, and I think I like that more than architecture, to be honest, because I had mm-hmm. my colleagues in architecture that would work on one project for like two, three years. Yeah. And they would tell me they would always get tired of it after a couple months <laughs> and they had years to go. And then they, they told me like, how do you guys you know, how many projects do you guys do within the year? And like, oh, over 10 at least, <laughs> you know? And they said, wow, like, and I said, yeah, it's really fast paced. And I think I like that better um, than, you know, working on just one project for two, three years. I like the fast pace of it. I, I kind of work fast when I was in school and I kind of, that kind of translated to the profession. My boss kind of told me like, you're fast. I can give you stuff and you're, you could be done in like an hour before. And I'm like, yeah, that's, I'm used to kind of just working fast and just head mm-hmm. down, just work. Cause I didn't like to waste time in school, you know, like mm-hmm. some of my classmates, when we go out to lunch, they go out for like two, three hour lunches. And then they come back and they talk about their lunch and then it's another <laughs> hour wasted. I was the type that would drive separately from them. So I would have to, I mean, I would take a break with them. I would have lunch with them. But when I come back, like I want to go to work cause I want to go home. Mm-hmm. I don't want to stay as lo- uh, longer than I need to. So mm. I kind of place the importance of like just being quick and being efficient, really. Because mm-hmm. um, like I said, I've, I've seen my colleagues that would go on coffee breaks for like hour and a half and then they come back and they still gossip and talk. And then I'm like, okay, you just wasted two hours where you could have done be done in two hours and go home early, you know? Yeah. So that was kind of like my uh, MO. I 
I don't like to waste time. I just like yeah. to be efficient and quick and get mm-hmm. it done and go home. <laughs> so I can relax, you know. I didn't yeah. like procrastinating. I don't like procrastination. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's, no. that's a problem for a lot of us. <laughs> I know for a lot of interior designers, yeah, yeah. But for me, I hate it. Wait, I hate it. Like if I if I if there's something down the road, I'm gonna write it down and I'm gonna I'm gonna do it like a day before. I'm going to do mm. it a couple days before.、Um, I just don't、great. like putting things off. I I guess that was my mentality when I was in、yeah. school too. So, do you feel like that helped you with your work-life balance? Because you know, in architecture, interior design, it's a norm that we work overtime, we work a lot of hours, and then sometimes we burn out.、Um, do you feel like that mentality you have definitely helped you to set boundaries and like the work-life balance while you're working? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of,、um, from what I'm hearing, our graduates now are struggling with that work-life balance, right? They, there are times when you do have to work, you know, fourteen-hour plus days at the office and to get a deadline, or if you're helping somebody with a deadline,、um, and you know, I think that's when the efficiency comes in, being efficient in your work and being diligent and not wasting time、uh, to get the most out of it, and also, you know. Take that same kind of diligence and mentality when you're out of work. Just like you said, take time to kind of just take a break. Like when I work at the office, it's not me just working four hours straight. I I, I get up every hour and I walk, and I just kind of ment- walk outside, feel the sun on my skin, and it's kind of like refreshing to kind of just get out from like the intense part of the work to kind of just relax for a little bit and then get back to it. So I always tell. Our students, like you know, when you're stuck, go outside for a walk, go get a coffee, think about something not design, and then go eat your lunch in, on the grass, you know, and、um, just take a break. And that's okay. Taking those like mental breaks really helps you versus like you know trying to force things when they're not working.、Um, I think a lot of us try to do that, and we don't kind of. Um, you know, be aware of ourselves and say, "Hey, no, stop! Just go outside for a walk. Don't think about anything, or listen to some music, or meditate, or whatever you need to do to kind of relax. Just even if it's for like five minutes,、um, five minutes is not going to hurt you. You know,、um, I think we all have to kind of hold ourselves accountable to those things because,、um, as you know, in design, it does get intense, and there's, <laughs> there's like people、yeah. screaming at you for this drawing or. You know, like you have other projects that are behind this main project, and I think sometimes our industry has to say stop. Just yeah, know, a deadline is not as important as somebody's mental health, really. Yeah, I feel like it definitely became a、um, hot topic after COVID. Like、yeah. everyone kind of like a. Take a back seat and realize, like, whoa, there is a different way of working, and there is actually、um, they actually thought about their mental health. I feel like it got some time to kind of think about it.、Um, I feel like it definitely became a hot topic lately, and it's good because it made people realize that、um, you know you need to take some breaks. Like you can't yeah, just I, keep going. Yeah,、uh, pre pre COVID at LPA, they would have.、Um, We would have somebody in our in our group that would always get up every hour and says, "Okay, five minutes stretch, you guys." <laughs> <laughs> Everybody would like get up if they wanted to to stretch or you know 
get up out of the chair. We have um, sit stand desks now where you can stand and work. Yeah. Um, so it's I think a lot of companies are, you know, getting into this idea of yeah, mental health is important for the well being of your your workers. You don't want to train them out because that's not good. You're you're not you're going to be uh, less productive. You're going to have issues in in quality control in your design for for those who are tired and yeah need a break so it's and and we we look at that in school as well right we we look at our students and we always kind of observe them and make sure they're okay mentally um so that's why i I always tell them you know if you're stuck go for a walk around campus and take a break yeah come back and then we'll we'll figure it out so it's not yes we have deadlines and we have to meet and we expect our students to do that but we also kind of want them to kind of give themselves a kind of self-check on their well-being as well it's completely different from when we were in school right and it was just like yo you gotta do this you gotta do this and we don't care about you know (laughs) like you don't take a break come back here and do this and yeah it's, it's different now it's you can't I don't think you can do that anymore yeah, no, that's really great. That's really great to hear uh, how it is right now, like with the students. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always thought back to school days and thinking that we should have taught more about work-life balance in school because mm-hmm. that we didn't know. And then when we started working, you just like start going like 200 miles per hour and then you just burn out. Yeah. Yeah, well, especially yeah. now with, with COVID and, you know, some of our students who are at home and they're struggling and, you know, they they can't come in on campus because they don't want to pay, you know, for an apartment if there's only one class that's in person, mm. you know. So we, we understand where people's circumstances are. I think it's up to us as teachers to kind of adjust to each student individually and see where each student is at. And yeah. I think that's what I kind of try to do and obviously some students are going to be stronger than others which are great but I think it's up to us as uh, professors to kind of see not teach the class the same way right you have to kind of teach each student individually uh, a unique way because you have to kind of cater to their needs and to what they may be lacking or you know what what skill sets they may be lacking so we have to kind of adjust to our students I don't think teachers should be just teaching the same way throughout I, I does I don't think it works that way yeah yeah definitely it's it's not easy to be a teacher (laughs) so much patient and like kind of kind of almost like hr skills right like the manager skills yeah pretty much so much but what what to me like the rewarding part of me teaching versus like being in the firm is Mm. seeing the students grow and seeing them kind of as a freshman to seniors doing big thesis projects you know and and doing like a project you know that's similar to like a real world setting, but it's only one person doing it. Yeah. And to see their skills grow and to see them kind of graduate and, and, you know, see them in the profession. That's the most rewarding part to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the firm, right. Your client is not going to come back and say, Oh, thank you very much for my space. I love it. You, you just build it and then they leave and then that's it. Right. So it's, and you don't see them again, you know, you just, they just do their own thing but in here like it's nice when students come back and talk to me and say oh like you were very helpful in this class and the things that you taught me I'm doing at my firm now and like to me that's like the most rewarding thing about this profession like I mm-hmm. it's why I love what I do because I'm here to nurture these students and have make them grow and um, my job I always tell them is to make them as uh 
be the best as possible. So when they graduate, they can compete mm-hmm. with anybody. Um, you know, so it's, it's been really rewarding for me to see their growth and, you know, it's, it's been great. Yeah. What, what was that? Like, what was that one thing or a few things that made you decide to transition, like really decide like, okay, I'm not going to work for a firm anymore. I'll just become a teacher. And now, you know, obviously you have that master degree that allows you to do that. But what is that like a real decision that made you switch? Yeah. So when I was in grad school my last year, um, so I was at Cal Poly Pomona and then Mount San Antonio College, which is a a community college, which is down the street from Cal Poly Pomona. Um, Two of the professors there were, um, she was my professor here at CHLB. She taught me space planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, She knew I was at Cal Poly Pomona and she called me and, or she emailed me one day and she said, hey, Vaughn, I know you're at Cal Poly Pomona getting your last year in Masters of Architecture. Uh, she's like, would you be interested in teaching a interior design, beginning interior design class here at Mount Sac? Um, it'll just be part-time. It'll just once a week or once or twice a week. Um, and I was like, no, like I, I don't, I've never considered myself teaching. And I told her the same thing I told you. I, I wanted to have my own firm and, <laughs> you know, um, and then she goes, well, if you're interested, we have an open house for our um, interior design uh, program if you want to come down you're I live down the street and then I was like sure I'll come down and then I, I kind of saw the building which was brand new I saw their classroom I saw the kind of classes the projects that the students were doing because they kind of catered it towards Cal State Long Beach because a lot of them transferred to Cal State Long Beach oh okay. uh, so I was like oh yeah this is these are classes similar that you know we have at Long Beach and then um, she's like yeah we we cater towards Long Beach because a lot of our students transfer over there Mm. And she goes like, well, we have an opening for an, a beginning interior design course. And I thought of you because you went to school there and you're getting your master's. And I'm like, oh, I, like I don't want to really teach. And then she kind of showed me, well, this, this is how much you would get paid per hour with your master's degree. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and it was like, it was a nice chunk of money. Okay. And I, like, and I said, okay, let me think about it. And then when I went home, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm all teach. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So, cause I keep thinking that I don't know. Like, so I thought the instructors, a lot of people don't want to teach, is because the pay isn't that great. Um, I don't know if this is a sensitive topic. If you feel comfortable, talk about it. Like, no, that's, the, that's fine. I, yeah, I could. I could tell you straight up. I I was offered seventy five dollars an hour to teach. Mm-hmm. Because uh, back then, uh, well, now too, community colleges pay more oh. uh, for salary because they they have a lot of funding from the government. They have a lot of funding from state. So they usually get money first before us as CSU. So oh. when she told me like, oh yeah, by the way, with your master's degree, you can earn up to $75 an hour. And I was like, huh? I was like, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even though even though it's like, it's like one class, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, four hours out of the week or five hours out of the week that's still 75 dollars times five that's still a pretty good chunk of money for a week of work yes only twice a week you know so at first I just was like okay yeah cool let me do it because I need money because I'm paying for grad school and I was running out of money Mm -hmm. so I just initially did it kind of just to get some money back right Mm -hmm. to kind of pay for the rest of my grad school to kind of pay my bills and things like that 
And then um, that was it. Primarily, it was like money that kind of <laughs> attracted me to teach because it was really nice. It was a really nice paycheck, extra kind of bonus paycheck for me. Yeah. And then, um, so I, I remember taking the teaching the first semester of intro to interior design. And then I remember having reviews from the students and then um, my reviews came back and they were all like hundred percent. Like all the students love, love me, even the ones that I failed, <laughs> <laughs> they liked me enough. And then they like uh, Liz Eatman, who is the program coordinator there. She said, Oh, you, you did really well on your reviews. The students really love you. Uh, you want to come back and teach again next semester? I'm like, sure. And that was it, right? It was just kind oh, of wow. keeping that trend. And yeah. eventually, you know, the students started hearing about me and my teaching style. And they, they, I guess they liked my teaching style and they resonated with me because I, I was younger. I was, I looked like them. Yeah. I, yeah. I was fresh out of grad school and I had some work experience. So True. I think they connected with me really quickly. And then, so I was there for like three years teaching uh, classes at Mount Sac a couple of classes in the, in the spring and the fall. And then again, it was just like my part-time gig, right? I was working at LPA full-time Wow. and then they were kind of enough to kind of let me teach part-time at Mount Sac. Mm -hmm. So that was really nice of them to let me do that. So I was getting like two paychecks, which was really nice. Um, yeah. But also yeah. super busy. Yeah. Super busy as well, but it was nice to have like that extra kind of paycheck from the school um but it was also nice from for lpa for for them to allow me to teach uh one day out of the week um and still kind of pay me full time so it was really nice kind of like a oh, nice wow. balance of both yeah uh, and then when i remember getting an email from dorothy who's the professor here at csulb and she emailed me she says hey Vaughn, like i i know you're teaching part-time at Mount Sac and I heard really good things about you from Liz Eatman. And I know you work at LPA full-time. We have a position open uh, for tenure, full-time teacher here at CSULP. So I just thought of you that if you were interested in applying and I was like, huh, you know, like I, I was like, okay. I was like, I, I really love the teaching part. I was teaching again for three years now at Mount Sac and I, I loved it. It was a fun kind of side hustle. And then I was like, you know what? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll apply for the full-time you know, tenure position here at CSULB, just, wow. you know, who knows? And then sure enough, like I was in March of 2016, I was in the top three and they called me and they said, oh, you're, you're in one of our three finalists. We want you to come down to the school. And it was a whole day interview. Oh, like I, wow. I got, I got interviewed by faculty. I had to do a presentation in front of faculty and students. I had a, they took me out to lunch. I had an interview with the dean. And then had a dinner with the department chair and a couple of faculty. So it was a whole day, like interview and me kind of explaining my portfolio and like my teaching philosophies. Um, it was exhausting. It was. Oh, wow. And then uh, I think about like a week later, I got a call um, and I was at LPA and they called me during lunch. So I booked the conference room at LPA and then I, I put them on the, on the, you know, speakerphone. And then they told me like, yeah, we would like to offer you the, the position at Cal State Long Beach. And I was like, oh. and I was like, oh, wow. You know, and I was like, okay. I was like, sure. I'll, I'll I would gladly accept. Like it's my alumni. I know, yeah. them, I know the classes. Um, and then 
I was like super happy, but then I had to go back to work at the same time. Yeah. And then I was like, when, when should I tell my boss that um, I just accepted a, an offer at Cal State Long Beach? And then I told her kind of later on the day when she was free. And at first she's like, oh, congratulations. And she's like, wait, does that mean you're leaving us? And I'm like, <laughs> unfortunately, she's like, oh, but I told her like, you know what? The, my teaching schedule is I teach Monday, Wednesday, and I'm, I'm free Tuesday, Thursday, if you mm-hmm. need me to come in and help you with work as a mm-hmm. part-time consultant. Mm-hmm. She goes, yeah, I, I actually could use you part-time to help me. Mm-hmm. So the past, so as soon as I got hired full-time at, at CSULB, I was working part-time at LPA as well. Oh, wow. So I was teaching full-time now and now working at the firm part-time to help my boss. So I basically came in and I I, you know, she showed me what needed to be done and I, I would do it because she didn't have to train me. I, I knew, mm-hmm. I knew the steps I knew how to, I knew who to send things to, I knew how to manage the project off to the side. So it was that, it was a nice kind of collaboration. I, I would help her out, lessen her load. And then it kept me kind of current in the profession when I taught and I can bring examples from work to teaching. Yeah. You know? So it provided a nice balance for me um, yeah. early on and I could I could bring the students uh, mentors with my colleagues at LPA. I brought them to the office a couple times to give them a field trip tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I use colleagues at LPA for you know jury reviews and and panel reviews. So it was a nice collaboration between the school setting and the professional world. And I think mm-hmm. that resonated a lot with students. You know they appreciated that that I I was bringing in ideas and philosophies from the profession into what I'm teaching yeah Um, so it it was great it was kind of like again perfect timing and things were meant to be in in you know that time and it was it's been great the kind of balance between the two Um, Mm -hmm. I'm teaching more now that I'm consulting because you know the pandemic has kind of hurt our industry yeah but I still have ties to LPA a little bit oh and I'm also, you know, doing my own work now, which is, which is, I think I want to pursue more of. Um, oh, so you're also um, kind of starting your own business? Yeah, just like small, really small. small. Like, okay. Yeah, it's nothing like too big because obviously teaching takes a bulk of my time. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's kind of nice that I, I, I want to start my own stuff because, again, it's on my own time as well. And I can kind of balance work life. Um, versus at the firm, right? They have to tell you, you have to be here a certain time. You have to do this a certain time. So it's nice to kind of, again, be my own boss kind of in, in the school setting, but also in my, you know, small professional work and helping out with, you know, projects here and there. Um, so trying to find that balance again, uh, this time around. I'm just curious about your teaching philosophy now. <laughs> that you were mentioning. <laughs> um, I, if I, if you ask my students, you can they can tell tell you my teaching style is different, right? I I allow them to be creative. Um, I don't kind of push my philosophies on them. I don't try to push my ideals on them. I let them kind of explore their own. And my job is to kind of enhance their idea or strengthen it. Um, if their idea gets too crazy, I'm going to pull them back and say, this is too much. You got to tone mm-hmm. it down and simplify it. But I think um, one of the reasons why they resonate with me a lot is because I'm able to kind of find their idea and push it to be stronger. 
Mm-hmm. Um, whereas yeah. from, you know, what I've heard, other professors tend to kind of say no and tell them to stop and think mm-hmm. of something else. Mm-hmm. So they kind of appreciate that I can, I can see what they're struggling with and I can help them strengthen the idea or the design or the concept or create something much more stronger than what they're showing me. So um, I'm, I'm pretty laid back, right? But I, I do make them work to get that A. So I'm not <laughs> easy. I'm not easy. Um, but I think my communication method is easy. So they feel more comfortable with me. So I, my goal is to kind of get them out of their comfort zone a little bit mm-hmm. and challenge them and, uh, you know, to try different things and experiment with different things. That's, that's the perfect time to do that when you're in school, because, yeah. you know, you, like you said, you, there's no budget, there's no hard deadline. Um, it's really just kind of having fun and exploring what you can do and pushing the limits of what design can be. And like I said, if, if they get too crazy, I let them know. I tone mm-hmm. them, I, I kind of reel them back in and say, okay, calm down. Like what's the big <laughs> idea and how can we carry that big idea through? Yeah. Um, and I let them explore. I think that's, that's a part of the fun of it for me too, is seeing what they can do when they're kind of, you know, researching it on their own or they're doing it on their own. It's kind of like they have training wheels Mm-hmm. when they're freshmen, right? And then when they get into upper division studio, you kind of let them go a little bit. Yeah. And they may fall a couple of times, but if you kind of encourage them to kind of get back on and keep trying, then eventually they'll learn how to do it on their own. So, yeah. Okay. So you talked a lot about the rewarding part of being a teacher. I'm curious if there is um, any big challenges when you started teaching, like is there like one or two of your biggest challenges? Um, I think at the beginning, it was getting used to like the administration stuff with being a teacher, like, you know, budget and then Mm. scheduling and then um, all the things that you don't see behind the scenes. Um, When I'm I'm teaching in a classroom, it's not work for me, right? It's super fun. Mm. But when we have like conference meetings and then we have faculty meetings and we have like, committee meetings that I have to be volunteers for like that's all the work that a lot of students don't see and it's oh. for me it was kind of challenging to kind of understand how this university works like the order of system of how things decisions get made and how policy gets made and how to change a class um, I think after my fifth year now I'm used to how those policies work and how to change policy and how to change a course if I need to but that was really tough for me at the beginning because it, it was just like a lot Right. It was a lot of information thrown at me and and um, they made me pro uh, co-coordinator of the interior design program after my second year. Mm. They just threw that on to me and I was like, mm-hmm. what? And I like I have to talk to different universities. I have to figure out what our how our classes mix with a community college. Oh, wow. So it's a lot of like that behind the scenes stuff that doesn't get seen. Um, so that was really hard. It was it was a lot of information being thrown and not understanding how processes work and then also filling out my, my application in terms of my, my tenure to apply for tenure. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot of like organization and bookkeeping and, you know, keeping telling them how I taught and how I showing them how I served in committees and volunteer and showing mm-hmm. them, you know, my, my professional work as well and compiling that to a document to kind of, for your promotion and your tenure and things like that. So it was a lot of, 
information thrown within the first couple of years. But wow. like I said, when I when I was teaching, it was fine. It was yeah easy. I felt mm-hmm. like I wasn't working. But then mm-hmm. a lot of people don't see behind the scenes kind of how a university works. And yeah, it's not my it's not my favorite thing to do, but it, it's stuff that has to be done in my kind of position, you know. So that was the most challenging thing for me at the beginning. I think. Uh, okay, can we like let's get back to a little bit about the culture thing. What do you think? I mean, you came here super early, but you still have this dual、um, culture kind of background. So, what do you think this dual culture and you know bilingual background kind of affected your life? Like anything, like life, career, love, whatever you can think of, pro cons. Yeah, I think for me, when I was growing up. I was more of the shy side. If if you remember, my cousin was more of the outgoing one, and I think if if I had to kind of go back and tell myself advice, it would be be more outspoken. Don't be afraid to fail and fail often, because、uh, I think that's what happened to me. Like I was afraid to kind of fail and and you know not succeed, and that kind of. Stop me from exploring different things, or trying different things, or making、mm. friends with different kinds of people.、Um, it was just kind of like my personality back then. I was really shy. I、mm. didn't really speak. And again, part of it was because English was the second language, and the culture was very new, so it kind of overwhelmed me. But I, I think I wish I would have been more, you know, ex- exploratory in in terms of like trying things and and、um, you know. Don't be shy, really. I, I know it's hard, but I think you have to just kind of attack with aggression what you want to do,、mm-hmm. you know, and and just go get it. Don't be afraid, really. And I think that kind of hindered me early on in my career、um, in school. But then I think what design did is that kind of helped me kind of emerge out of that shyness,、mm-hmm. emerge out of that shell, because in design, like you know, we have to present. We have to be vocal. We have to fight for our idea, and we have to, you know,、um, present in front of clients and strangers to kind、mm-hmm. of understand our design. So I think that kind of really helped me come out of my shell and be more vocal.、Yeah. And you know, now I'm presenting in front of you know thirty kids, and I'm not, I'm fine. Yeah. yeah. Right. Before I would be like sweating, and I would try to figure out what to say. Have like no cards. Yeah.、Um, so I think our. Design program and our design background in general helped me kind of emerge out of that shyness and and really kind of just be more vocal and and stand for you know your designs and defend it. I think the major really helped me kind of grow as a person too. So、mm-hmm. it wasn't just、um, you know something I wanted to do. It actually changed my personality too.、Mm. Unexpected, but I think it was needed. Yeah.、Um... You know, I have like three final questions, but I think you already answered one.、Uh, so basically, I have、uh, three final takeaway questions for our listeners.、Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, I think you just answered because it was if you could give advice to your younger self, like what could it be? I、yeah. think you just answered that. Yeah, yeah. Just to summarize, I would just say, don't be afraid. Just you know,、um, be yourself.、Uh, whatever that is. That is, if you're still trying to find yourself, that's okay.、Mm-hmm. Where where you're at right now is where you're supposed to be. You know, I think everyone grows differently. Some grow faster. Some find themselves later on in life. 
I mean, we have we have students that are in their fifties in interior design school, you know, and that's yeah. okay. That's mm-hmm. okay. You know, it's you don't compare yourself to others. Really, sometimes you just gotta, you know, you're okay where you're at. So yeah, be okay with it. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so the second question is, what's one of your favorite cultural traditions and or food? Oh man, um, <laughs> anything like Filipino or Spanish culture, because <laughs> we both of our cultures love to eat. We love to have big gatherings. We love to celebrate with family and friends. Mm-hmm. And you know, my wife's Mexican, and they're the same way, right? Huge mm-hmm. family, huge parties, tons of food. Um, the and you're at their houses for the whole day, just talking and laughing and joking around. Um, but I, I mean. We're foodies. Yeah. We, we love any type of food, really. <laughs> so yeah. we love exploring different restaurants. And I mean, we live in LA, which is great. So there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of foods that we love trying and, you know, experimenting with and cooking with. So, but I would say what I enjoy most about our Filipino and Spanish culture is the family, um, mm. how everyone's connected to each other. And sometimes it could be a little crazy, you know, like, <laughs> as usual right with a big family but you know it's it's hard to not imagine their impact on you um and where it kind of led you today so definitely yeah. family food and gatherings are my favorite part of our culture wow yeah that's great yeah if, if you go to if you ever go to a filipino house you're always going to get asked to eat some food yeah right? yeah or off, you're always going to get offered food if you don't it's not a filipino house yeah, no, same. We have similar, like in the Chinese uh, yeah. household. If you go to someone's house, they just keep on feeding you and like yeah. till you can't eat anymore. Exactly. Yep. That's that's the culture, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So last question is, what's something that people seems to misunderstand about your culture? Um, that we're more than just nurses or accountants. <laughs> uh you know like you take, think of a filipino oh he's a nurse or oh she's a nurse or oh he's an accountant or whatever um i think that's the stereotype that gets kind of misconstrued a lot i mean it was kind of enforced upon me by my parents like oh you should be a nurse because you're going to make more money mm. um, you know and to me it's like it's not about money it's about what you love doing if you're good at what you do the money will come mm-hmm. you know so they look at me like oh you're you're a professor? I'm like, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm one of the very few Filipino professors in the whole state, you know, and this is actually Filipino American history month. So, um, Oh, nice. Yeah. So thank you for interviewing me during our, our, our month, but it's, it's that stereotype of, you know, we're more than just a nurse or we're more than just accountants or, you know, we can be artists, we can be designers, we can be architects, we can be professors. And that's what I kind of tell my cousins like oh how did you get to do what you do and like it's something that i like doing you just got to find it and the money will come don't you know because again our our parents were that generational type where oh you have to make money to survive you have to make money to kind of take care of yourself and us when we get older Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah it's true but you're not gonna love your job you're not gonna be healthy if you're just making money and you you don't like what you do Yeah. yeah um it, to me, I was, it's the other way around. Like, you got to love what you do and then the money will come. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I always tell my students and my younger cousins, like, find what you love doing. 
And if you love what you do, you're going to be really good at it and mm-hmm. the money will come and yeah. you'll be more than plenty to support yourself or to support your parents or whatever. Um, you know, life is not about how much money you make really it's how much you impact other people and your mental health as well as the health of your family and friends. There's no price on health. Right. So yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's really, like I said, do what you love doing and the money will come find you. Um, Mm -hmm. If you make a lot of money out of it, cool. If you make enough to earn a decent living, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's totally true. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. I don't know if you have anything else that I didn't get to ask that you want to share. No, I just say thanks for interviewing me and allowing me to kind of speak my voice and be heard. Um, Looking forward to hearing the rest of your podcast when I, you know, in my free time to hear about other immigrants and other and how they grew up and, and where they're at now. So it's it's really an interesting podcast because everyone's an immigrant, right? Everyone mm-hmm. came here from somewhere and yeah, everyone's doing their own thing and being successful in their careers. And I think it's it's needed to, to show other people that, you know, what we're doing is is feasible it can be done and mm-hmm. with hard work and and dedication like you can you can do big things and um, like you're an example of that right with this podcast and working professionally and mm-hmm. graduating from here so it's great that's I think it's definitely something that needs to be more highlighted um in the country like you know we're we're immigrants man we're we can yeah. do big things, you know yeah yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. This is definitely my mission to share out as many stories as possible and as diverse as possible to also like push myself to reach out to people that I don't know, you know, friends of friends, like people I don't know, the culture I don't know, kind of just pushing myself out of my comfort zone because um, right. we all have certain group of friends and there are always some culture we're not familiar with. Right. And I think that's where we can grow most, right? If we kind of expand beyond our comfort zone and listen to other people or experience other cultures or other, or other people, um, it's uncomfortable, but I think that's where we grow the most. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I, I applaud you for doing this and it's really cool. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to listen to the other people that you interviewed, <laughs> you know, hear their stories. And I, this is, I love, I love this. I love hearing people's stories and where they came from and, you know where they're at now so this is like totally up my alley podcast oh nice thank you so much yeah thank you yeah it's great to hear 